there can be many reasons for setbacks. And last week, I suggested that uh, one of these reasons was the inability to forgive someone who has hurt us or offended us in the past. And what happens then is that we keep another person locked in a prison of unforgiveness. And in doing so, we hurt ourselves. As someone once said, unforgiveness is a little bit like drinking poison, hoping that the enemy will die. I want to stay on the subject this morning of forgiveness, and I want to look at it from another angle. Last week, we focused on the inability that we have sometimes to forgive others. But this morning, I want us to focus on our inability to forgive ourselves. Two aspects of forgiveness. These two aspects go very much hand in hand. Um, Paul writes, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other as in Christ, God forgave you. As we saw last week, we are to forgive others just as in Christ, God has forgiven us. But to forgive others in that way, and I'm going to sound really obvious in what I say, we also need to understand truly that God has forgiven us of our sins. If we can't accept that God has forgiven us, then we will lose the motivation to forgive others. And, but if we are spiritually aware that God has forgiven us, and if we are aware of his absolutely amazing grace, a love that we, we don't deserve, a love that we will never earn, a love that we will never replay, repay, then that, in a sense, will act as a wonderful incentive for us both to love ourselves and love others and forgive ourselves and forgive others. Dorothy, not her real name, was a lady in my first church in Cardiff. She was a godly older lady, long since gone to heaven. She and her husband had a very simple faith, but Dorothy was plagued by an incident that happened in her younger years. She was gripped by something that was so shameful she could never talk about it. I never got to the bottom of what that problem was. But she couldn't forgive herself. She told me that she had asked God to forgive her on many, many occasions. But she couldn't leave her sin at the foot of the cross. She couldn't leave it with God. Although she had asked God to forgive her, and I believe that God did forgive her, she couldn't forgive herself. She knew all about God's grace, Theologically speaking, she could quote chapter and verse from the Bible, no problem at all. But she wouldn't allow the experience of God's grace and forgiveness to be hers in practice. And her spiritual life was strangled. And she walked throughout her life, instead of in the joy of the Lord, she walked throughout her life really living under a cloud of guilt and shame. And it was such a shame to see her when Christ had forgiven her. And yet she could not forgive herself. Carl Menning, a, a famous psychiatrist, once said that if we could convince the patients in psychiatric hospitals that their sins were forgiven, 75% of them would walk free the next day. But from time to time, there's a little bit of Dorothy in all of us, I'm sure about that. That we have asked God to forgive our sin, we have asked for a new start. 
we have handed our lives over to him, but on times, we allow that guilt, that sin which has already been cancelled by the cross, to get the better of us. And guilt can have such a destructive effect on our lives. The Bible is so incredibly honest, isn't it? I just love the stories that we read of people who have made wrong turns, bad choices in their lives, and at least for a while have been on a downward spiral. I thank God that we have these, these, these stories to learn of the mistakes of others and also to see where they got to on their journey, get some insight into seeing how they arrived at better places. There's the, the well-known story of uh, King David, a man after God's own heart. He was um, appointed by God, anointed by God, and yet he was as human as any one of us. It says in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 2, one evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. For a moment, let's give David the benefit of the doubt. Poor guy, he probably couldn't sleep. Uh, they'd run out of diazepam at the palace. He was restless. He took a walk. Uh, and what he did next and what he saw next certainly didn't help his sleep. There was a beautiful naked woman before him. Uh, not sure why she was bathing with the curtains open, mind you, but uh, that's probably a story that we won't go into this morning. He couldn't help that first involuntary look. She was there. He didn't mean to look, but he could have probably done something about the second look and the third look and the fourth look and the fifth look. Billy Sunday, a great American evangelist, once said, temptation is the devil looking through the keyhole. Yielding is opening the door and inviting him in. And that's most definitely what David did. He opened very much the door. He sent one of his servants to go and find out about this, this woman that he had just seen. Bad move. His servant said, isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife, and the wife, of Uriah the Hittite. And then even after hearing that, he was, that she was another man's wife, instead of backing off, he burned with passion to have sex with her. David was playing with fire. He got burned. Someone once said, flee temptation, but don't leave a calling card. That's not what he did. I'm sure if David had heard that saying, he might not have got into the trouble that he got into, but he slept with her. The next thing that happens is that uh, Bathsheba returns for a while and uh, she says that she's pregnant. David said, okay, got this one covered. Uh, he sends for her husband, Uriah, who was one of his fighting soldiers, fighting for his country. And th the whole idea behind David's plan was that if Uriah comes back, sleeps with her, he will think at least that, th that the baby is his. And uh, he says, we can both live with that. Now, Uriah is called home. He's an honorable man. He refuses to sleep with his wife because his friends are on the front line losing their lives. So David puts plan B into operation. And plan B was to send Uriah back to the front line of the battle and to get all the soldiers around him to retreat, to withdraw from Uriah so that he was killed. So David, this man after God's own heart, committed adultery, then committed murder. He continued to cover his tracks. There undoubtedly were those who knew what had happened 
There were whispers probably around the palace, whispers around the army camp of what, of what was going on. But it remained that way until a little while later, Nathan, one of the prophets of God, came to him and told uh, David what he had done and what God thought of it. And that, for David, changes absolutely everything. David sees his sin for what it was. He cries out for God's forgiveness. And uh, there are two Psalms that we find uh, in the book of Psalms which uh, focus on this period in David's life. And we get an insight to what a person who is overwhelmed by guilt and unforgiveness is like. Can't forgive himself. He's just swallowed up in anguish and in grief. Let me read some of his words to you. In Psalm 51, he says, Have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love. Because of your great compassion, blot out the stain of my sins. Wash me free from guilt. Purify me for, from my sin. For I recognize my rebellion. It haunts me day and night. Against you and you alone have I sinned. I have done what is evil in your sight. Purify me from my sins and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than the snow. Oh, give me back my joy again. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Real heart searching going on there. In Psalm 32, he says this. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. And then as we read in Psalm 32, there's a change. There's a change in words and a change in, in tone. And he says, then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And he forgave the guilt of my sin. You see, up until that moment, David was languishing in turmoil. He suffered from physical ailments. Emotional strength was sapped. Psychiatrists tell us that uh, many people who are experiencing guilt uh, will experience many of those symptoms as well in their lives. But David not only received God's forgiveness, but he was also able to forgive himself. This is what he writes in Psalm 32. Blessed, happy is he whose transgressions are forgiven whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him. As someone once said, for sins to be covered by God, they first need to be uncovered by us in confession. Again, a verse that we looked at last week. If we confess our sins, he, God, is faithful and just to forgive us and to make us clean again. Now, King David, unlike my elderly friend uh, Dorothy, was able to accept God's forgiveness and to once again live in the blessedness of knowing uh, sins forgiven. Although I'm sure, I'm pretty sure, that what he had done was something that he was never able to erase from his mind all of his days. I think it's uh, so important to distinguish between two sorts of guilt, harmful guilt and healthy guilt. Now, healthy guilt, that sounds a bit of an oxymoron, doesn't it? You know, surely guilt is never healthy. Maybe I should use other words, true guilt and false guilt. But healthy or true guilt, I would say, originates from God. We might call it by a different name. We might call it conviction, conviction of the Holy Spirit. It's where the Holy Spirit highlights some area of our lives and puts his finger upon them 
We know that we are wrong. We know that we are in the wrong place with the Lord. We know that we are not living in his will. We know that perhaps there are things that we are doing and saying in our lives which are not honoring to him. And the reason that he brings these pangs of guilt, conviction if you like, is not because he's a killjoy. It's not because he wants to spoil our fun or make us feel bad. But he desires to bring that change in our lives. To bring us to a place of repentance. Bring us to a place of forgiveness and blessedness once again with him. And what King David experienced was healthy or true guilt. But when God spoke to him through the words of Nathan the prophet, it brought him to a place of forgiveness. On the other hand, harmful or false guilt doesn't originate from God. Well, where does that originate from then? It can originate from the world, the flesh, or the devil. Often regarded as the three enemies of the soul in Christian theology. The world, the, the, the flesh, and the devil. The world meaning the non-Christian worldview, which is always at odds with the Christian worldview. The flesh, meaning the battle that we fight against within our own lives, with our inner self. And Paul emphasizes that so, so well, doesn't he, in that great passage in Romans chapter 7, when he speaks of not doing the good we desire to do, but what we hate, he says, we do. Battle of the flesh. And also the devil. And the devil is called many things in uh, the Bible, including the accuser of our brothers and sisters in Revelation chapter 12, verse 10. He is a supernatural evil genius whose purposes are to undermine the work of God in the church, in our lives, and in the world. Now, I think it would be wrong for us to blame all harmful guilt on the devil, as some Christians do. You know, listening to some Christians speak, it would appear that the devil is to blame if they have a flat tire or if they burn the toast. But I think that we need to be very careful what we give the devil credit for. Often, false guilt comes from a desire to please other people. What we are desiring to do is to gain their approval in some way. And I've been thinking about this the last couple of days. And I thought, what example could I give? And I thought of an example. So I, I'm going to run with one, all right? Although there are probably hundreds of examples that we could think of. I often get told by people, I wish I had you a job. Working just one day a week. <laughs> Sounds great to me. And whenever I hear that, I smile because I'm polite, but I smile behind gritted teeth. And my usual reply to that comment is, no, 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 no. You've got it all wrong. I actually work half a day a week. We don't have an evening service. But subconsciously, I'm going to bear my soul here. Subconsciously, something of that comment sticks. Especially when I often, on a Monday afternoon, take an hour or two off to pick my grandchildren up from school. And if I meet someone on my way to the school or at the school gate, who are wondering what on earth am I doing there on a Monday afternoon, or someone may be trying to get hold of me on a Monday afternoon and I, I, I'm, they just can't get hold of me because I'm somewhere else. 
And I just sense I have to offer an explanation. I have to justify my actions somehow in case they get the wrong impression of me. I carefully inform them. I'll be back in my study this evening catching up, you know. But I thought about myself. I thought about this. Why do I do that? I do it because of false guilt. I don't want people to think that I'm a shirker or lazy. I want them to know that I'm busy doing the Lord's work, making sacrifices. I am the real deal pastor. I don't want to meet their disapproval. I hate confessing this. I really do. But I sometimes wear a badge of busyness as a medal of honor. Shameful. Absolutely shameful. I know that. Very insidious, isn't it? Very insidious. False guilt. Now, most ministers uh, uh, I know don't have someone checking up on them, someone looking over their shoulder um, to see if their church is serving their church well, if they're acting responsibly. But that can actually lead to one of two extremes. Extreme one is becoming a workaholic and setting very demanding standards for themselves, making every minute count. But the other extreme is laziness. And I tend to veer more towards the, the workaholic. When I was uh, working in local government many years ago, I used to clock in and clock out of work every day, and I had to do in a week my 37 and a half hours. And um, I, I was thinking about this, that if I had a means of doing that as a pastor, I'd probably do my 37 and a half hours by Wednesday. I could have Thursday and Friday off and flexi. How about that? That's a novel idea, isn't it? The point that I'm making is this. I work hard, as all of you do, I know. So why on earth should I feel guilty about standing at a school gate picking my grandchildren up? But I do. Now, false guilt doesn't originate from God. Uh, the example that I've just shared with you, it comes partly from the world. That is, the world's view is that you can often cut corners if you can get away with it. And partly from the flesh that my desire deep down within my own heart of not being disapproved of by others. But thirdly, we said that false guilt can also come from the devil. And one special tactic of the devil, he tells us that we are not forgiven when we are. That we are not forgiven when we are. Paul speaks in Ephesians chapter 6, and he tells us there about the fiery darts of the evil one, or the flaming arrows of the evil one, and that they can be extinguished, how? By what? By the shield of faith. The fiery darts, you, prob you probably think that's a great description of them, because they just come out of nowhere. The fiery darts can be extinguished by the shield of faith. And that's how we deal with this. But what is faith? Maybe the best description I've heard and explanation of faith is this. Very simply, faith is taking God at his word. Essentially trusting God that what he has said is true. Um, we sometimes sing a, a, a great hymn in this. We sing many great hymns, I know that. And uh, we'll probably close our service with this hymn later. 
It's uh, the hymn before the throne of God above. And in the third verse, it says, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. As someone once said, if the devil reminds you of your past, remind him of his future. We've read the end of the book. And it's so important that we trust in the cross. In Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, we read there that the devil is the accuser of Christians. And in the same verse, we are told how to overcome the accuser of Christians. We do so by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of our testimony. What on earth does that mean? By the blood of the Lamb and by the word of our testimony. How, how does that work? It means that we defend ourselves against any accusation the devil may throw at us by reminding him of the finished work of Jesus on that cross. The devil's desire is that we should live our lives under a cloud of judgment and guilt and condemnation. But God's desire is that we should live free, that we should be set free. For Paul writes, there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus has already paid the penalty for our sin. He has declared us righteous. He has died for us, the just for the unjust, the righteous for the unrighteous. And every Christian can defeat the accusations of the devil that we are too sinful for God to love or that we've not changed or that deep down we are still the same person that we are. We can defeat by reminding ourselves and reminding the devil that when Christ died, he died for my sin. He died to set me free. And his victory is my victory too. We remind ourselves that in Christ, we are a new creation. The old is gone and all things have become new. Jesus' death on a cross is the ultimate demonstration of God's love. That great verse in Romans chapter 5, verse 8. God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. C.S. Lewis uh, once wrote, if God forgives us, we must forgive ourselves. Otherwise, it's almost like setting ourselves up as a higher tribunal than him. Some Christians use the blood of Christ, I notice, as a kind of magical portion in spiritual warfare, a kind of Christian abracadabra, uh, much in the way that, uh, do you remember the old horror hammer films, hammer horror films, and uh, you know the idea of getting the garlic out to keep the vampires away? Well, some Christians almost do the same, not with garlic, but with the blood of Jesus. They sort of quote the blood of Jesus. And if they can mention the blood of Jesus so many times in their prayer, then they will somehow get extra protection against accident or mishap or attack. That's not biblical theology. That's spooky. That's superstitious. The blood and the power in the blood is in the recognition of what that represents. 
the blood of Christ essentially is shorthand for God's love, his forgiveness, his gift of righteousness, new creation, the new life, power over sin because of the cross. That's what the blood is. And we overcome by the blood of the lamb and the word of the testimony, meaning that in our darkest hour, when we are experiencing most doubts, even when we are under attack, as that hymn says, when Satan is tempting me to despair, that our testimony is, even in those times, I am God's child. I am God's son. I am God's daughter. I have been bought with a price, the precious blood of Christ. And he that the son sets free is free indeed. John's gospel informs us of Jesus on the cross. When he was on the cross, he cried out, it is finished. He didn't shout out, I am finished, but it is finished. The work that his father had sent him to do was now completed. The plan of salvation was now accomplished. The word that Jesus cried out is an Aramaic word. Jesus spoke Aramaic, and it's wor the word tetelestai. And tetelestai is an accounting term. It means paid in full. In other words, when Jesus cried out, tetelestai, it is finished, paid in full, he is saying that the job is now completed. Everything that the Father has sent me to do has been done. And the gospel writers also tell us that that, that moment, the curtain in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, which is hugely significant. The temple, the Jewish temple in Jerusalem, was essentially divided into three parts. There were the outer courts, there was the holy place where the, the priests did their work, and there was the most holy place, the inner sanctuary, where the high priest went once a year, where he brought a sacrifice for the sins of the people on the Day of Atonement. And in between this most holy place and the holy place where the other priests were was a curtain. And this curtain was 60 feet high and it was one inch thick. And when Christ died, that curtain was torn in, top, in two from top to bottom, signifying that God had done the tearing, that it wasn't needed any longer. You see, in Old Testament times, the high priest once a year brought an animal sacrifice to be sacrificed for the sins of the people. But now, the Lamb of God, Jesus, was the sacrifice. And we are told in the book of Hebrews that there was no need of any further animal sacrifice. They were to be done away with. That barrier that separated God and man was now done away with. Priests were no longer needed as intermediaries. They were to be done away with. And our salvation is complete. Tetelestai. It is finished. And you see, we overcome the accuser by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of our testimony. And as we declare this truth, God's truth, we can be set free. Some Christians never ever really experience breakthrough in their lives. And the reason that they don't experience breakthrough is because they are living according to their feelings rather than what God has said on the matter of their forgiveness. Those feelings don't tell us the whole truth. And very often we might not feel forgiven. 
we might have those pangs of guilt, that we might not be able to forgive ourselves. They arise from nowhere, cause us great anguish, rob us of peace and steal our joy. And that is why, and this probably is so important what I'm saying now, that is why we as Christians, we need to align ourselves, not according to our feelings, but to align ourselves with what God says. And when we think slave, God says son. And when we think sinner, God says saint. And when we think condemned, he says cleansed. And when we think guilty, he says grace. And when we think despised, he says my delight. And when we think of ourselves useless, he says useful. When we think loser, he says loved. When we think messed up, he says my masterpiece. When we think forsaken, he says forgiven. And you see, to acknowledge what God says on the matter changes everything. And when we can comprehend truly God's finished work in Christ, what he did on that cross, when we truly understand that and grasp a hold of that and comprehend that for ourselves, it changes absolutely everything that we can be set free from guilt and condemnation. And we can be released and we can release others in forgiveness too. Can I just ask this morning, is that something that you are aware of in your life? Have you experienced God's forgiveness? Only you can answer that. You can't answer that for the person sitting next to you or in front of you or behind you. But have you personally experienced God's forgiveness? Do you know the joy of what David was talking about in that psalm? That joy of knowing forgiveness with God. That your past has been covered, erased, wiped out. That you have a clean start and a new slate. Maybe you're a person this morning here who struggles a bit with your past. You so long for a new start and a new day. You would so yearn after total forgiveness if you ever thought it was possible. If that's you this morning, I just want you to, let's close our eyes together, shall we? just want you to pray a very simple prayer. I want you to say, dear Lord, just say it in your heart. Don't need to say it out loud. Dear Lord, I thank you for Jesus. I thank you for his death upon that cross. I thank you that when he died, he died for my sin. I thank you, Lord, that forgiveness is possible through Jesus today. And I choose this morning to put my faith and my trust in him. I will not look at my past with regret any longer. But Lord, I will trust you for you are great love to me. And I ask you, Lord, to forgive my sins, wipe the slate clean, enable me to live my life for your purposes in this world, I pray. Maybe this morning you're a person who has already asked for God's forgiveness, but you are a little bit like that lady Dorothy that I spoke about earlier on, that you're unable to forgive yourself. And God says to you this morning, trust me, align yourself to what I have said, not what you feel, because he that the Son sets free 
is free indeed.